save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Subscribe to Inclusion Revolution Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. Jamie's Log, Progressive, The Harrington's Backyard, Day 4, 2.18 a.m. I've been camping outside The Harrington House for four days now, proving that Progressive has 24-7 protection. Mr. Harrington says I don't need to do this, since Progressive protects 24-7 is a pretty easy concept to grasp, but I'm going to stay and prove my point. Besides, there's a big tree branch over the roof, and I think it's planning something. Progressive doesn't just offer a great price when you bundle home and auto. We offer round-the-clock protection, just not literally from Jamie. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and third-party insurers, and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to the Matt Lombardo Show, part of the Stacking the Box podcast. Please welcome your host, Matt Lombardo. What's going on, everybody? Welcome into the Matt Lombardo Show. I am Matt Lombardo, back from my extended residency along the Jersey Shore, just in time for NFL training camps getting underway in earnest, some this week, but the rest of the league next week. Really appreciate you tuning in to the Matt Lombardo Show here inside Fansided's Stacking the Box podcast feed. A big time thank you to Cole Thompson for holding it down the last couple of weeks while I've been away on vacation. And just some housekeeping before we get into what is going to be a big show, including breaking down why Jerry Jones has had a change of heart, a great conversation with former Jets general manager Mike Tannenbaum and a whole lot more. I'd really love it if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast to go ahead and subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store, on SoundCloud, Spotify, all of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you enjoy the program, please go ahead and leave us those five-star reviews inside Apple Podcasts. It really helps grow the show. Let me know what you like and some guests that you might want to hear from, and I'll go and get them on. But right now, as training camps are about to open up across the league, let's not forget that for the third time, the Dallas Cowboys are about to be featured on Hard Knocks. And it's always a fun show. It's always worth watching for fans. You get a great inside view of what life is like for players, what it's like for coaches, what it's like for the executives making the big decisions as cutdown day approaches. Kind of like what you get when you listen to this podcast every week. But the biggest story and the biggest camera is going to be trained on Jerry Jones's bus, which, by the way, you always know where the party is during the NFL Combine in Indianapolis by whether or not Jerry Jones's massive bus with the Dallas Cowboys star emblazoned on the side is pulled up to whatever bar, steakhouse, or watering hole inside Indianapolis. But Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys are among the more marquee stories of this league, one of the more interesting teams entering this season, and it's really no surprise when you look at the cast of characters with Dak Prescott coming back from that debilitating ankle injury, Ezekiel Elliott, one of the top five running backs in this league, maybe better than that, and a dynamic wide receiving core led by Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb. It's no surprise that quote-unquote America's team will once again be featured on Hard Knocks, and Jerry Jones will once again be a main character, just as he's been a main character of the Dallas Cowboys story throughout the history of their franchise and certainly over the past 30 to 35 years and that's kind of where I want to begin is looking back based on Jerry Jones's comments this week the Cowboys of course this summer returning to Oxnard California for training camp and Jones held his introductory press conference for the season before training camp got underway and I think that the comment that has generated the most buzz and what I really want to dive into here today is the comment that he admits finally, after all of these years, after all of this time, after so many, so many seasons with the Dallas Cowboys missing the postseason, flirting with their relevancy for part of a decade, Jerry Jones finally admits that he was wrong in how he handled Jimmy Johnson way back in the 1990s. Here's the audio courtesy of DallasCowboys.com. We had a great run of it. Uh, he's a great coach, and I'm uh, proud to have him as a friend and proud to have had the times that we had. We we, uh, we just had a great experience. Can you answer Switch's question now? 
Why? I've never, I've never been able to know why uh, I fucked it up. That, not just that, but anything else. <laughs> no, I can't answer those questions. Yeah, Jerry, you messed it up. And you messed up what could have been one of the all-time greatest franchises, not only in the history of the NFL, but in the history of sports. Because if you think back to the early 90s when the Dallas Cowboys were going on that run led by Hall of Famers Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin, Larry Allen anchoring the offensive line, Jay Novacek, one of the premier players at his position, and a really dominant defense with playmakers that they just cycled through year over year, they won three straight. And none of the Super Bowls were all that competitive against the Washington Redskins, against the Buffalo Bills, either one of them. And you really have to wonder if Jerry Jones would have found a way to check his ego inside the bus, leave it there, if he would have found a way to coexist with Jimmy Johnson, if Jimmy Johnson doesn't go down as one of the top four head coaches in the history of the sport. There's already a case based on the great trade robbery, based on what he was able to do in Dallas during his career there. There's already a case that Jimmy Johnson is a top 10 head coach all time in the NFL. But if they would have won four, five, six straight Super Bowls, nobody's beating that team. If they could have stuck it out, if they could have stuck together, you're talking about the Cowboys potentially winning as many as five straight. You're talking about the Dallas Cowboys then potentially holding the NFL record to this day with seven Super Bowl championships, with seven Lombardi trophies. And if Jimmy Johnson is responsible for five of them, He's not necessarily Bill Belichick, he's not necessarily Vince Lombardi, but he's in the Pantheon, and he's on the Mount Rushmore of great head coaches of all time, right alongside Belichick, right alongside Lombardi, right alongside Don Shula. Jimmy Johnson is the next name on that list. It's not Chuck Knoll. It's not, you know, Andy Reid at this point. It's not any of those coaches. It's Jimmy Johnson, if they would have been able to keep that together. And I thought it was really fascinating to juxtapose Jerry Jones's comments about his regret over how he handled and mishandled the Jimmy Johnson situation and the very messy divorce back in the 1990s with his goal of winning a Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys this year and how he would go about doing it. Known to man to get in a Super Bowl. That's a fact. And uh, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's nothing in my mind that can uh, uh, have a pri higher priority than that. The thing that means the most to me and I care about, and I could probably be anywhere in the world, I want to be right now. I want to be here uh, with our team. That audio courtesy of CBS Sports. Now, here's what's really fascinating about that. Because if you think about the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones is inseparable from that. He is the Dallas Cowboys. He is the power broker. He is the judge, jury, and executioner. He is the face of the franchise, the most powerful voice within the franchise, and he's the guy who has made the personnel decisions by and large for the past 30 years. And he says that he would do anything to get back to a Super Bowl. It really makes me wonder... When you think about the Dallas Cowboys in the future this year, and we'll get touch on that in a moment, but when you talk about the Dallas Cowboys this year, if it comes down to Jerry Jones stepping aside and letting his son, Stephen Jones, letting the front office wield more power, if he, it comes down to allowing head coach Mike McCarthy to wield more power over personnel decisions, like the old Meatloaf song, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Would Jerry Jones do anything to get back to and win a Super Bowl but not step aside, not hand off control? Now, I think the Cowboys have had a really nice offseason, and I love what they did in the NFL draft. I think that they went out and after drafting Micah Parsons, they went out and they fixed their front seven. They really doubled down on their commitment to fixing their defense, which was one of the more poorest defenses in the league. So I think the Dallas Cowboys, with all of their weapons on offense, with Dak Prescott coming back, finally made whole based on the contract that makes him the highest paid player in the league, based on what he was able to do when he was healthy two years ago, pushing for 5,000 yards. I think he makes a run at 5,000 yards in a 17-game season this year, by the way, with Cooper and Lamb and all of those weapons. I think the Cowboys have a real shot to win the NFC East. We've talked about it a few times on the podcast over the past couple of weeks and couple of months. I think the NFC East is a real three-team race to 10 or 11 wins. I think it's one of the more improved divisions in football. I think the Dallas Cowboys might have the most talented roster top to bottom, 
of anybody in that division. And Mike McCarthy takes a lot of flack, takes a lot of criticism because of his inability to win big games during his tenure in Green Bay, perhaps his over-reliance on analytics in terms of his philosophy and his roster building. But I thought that what the Cowboys did down the stretch last year, they played really well with a lot of uncertainty at quarterback after Prescott got hurt with Andy Dalton in and out of the lineup. I really like the Cowboys' chances this year to enter as the NFC East favorites. And we all know once you get in the postseason, anything can happen. So it's going to be really fascinating to watch hard knocks unfold and watch what happens with the Dallas Cowboys this preseason and going into the regular season because Jerry Jones, as the owner, he's as or more responsible for the Cowboys' downfall over the past 25 years with, what, one playoff win over that span as he is for the success in the 1990s when it was Jimmy Johnson who orchestrated the Herschel Walker blockbuster, when it was Emmitt Smith winning rushing titles, when the Cowboys were at their peak, Jimmy Johnson was responsible for much of that success. And Jerry Jones, yes, he hired Jimmy Johnson, but it was his involvement that drove a wedge in the relationship and ultimately ended the relationship in that era of success for the Dallas Cowboys. But I'd make a case that the Cowboys' era of mediocrity under Jason Garrett as head coach, with Chan Gailey as head coach for a spell, with all of the rotating casts of terrible quarterbacks that they've had over the years, and that run from about 2000 through 2015 or 16, somewhere in there, I'd make the case that Jerry Jones's over-involvement is what buried the Dallas Cowboys. So now, if he has truly committed to stepping back and handing the reins of power at least somewhat to the powers that be within the football side of the building, then I think Cowboys fans have reason for hope and reason for optimism in 2021 and beyond. And I think elsewhere in the NFC East, there's another team, and it's the team that I cover on a daily basis for G-Man HQ, fan-sided's New York Giants page. It's the New York Giants. And I think there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn between the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos in the AFC West. And I touched on this in my weekly national column on Wednesday. Go check it out at fansided.com. But I think you look at the parallels between the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos entering this season, and it's a really fascinating case study in how to build a roster and how to build a team. Because on one hand, you look in the AFC West where it continues to be Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs division to lose for as long as Mahomes and Reed are together. I've said it before, they're the prohibitive Super Bowl favorite out of the AFC and certainly the favorite to win the AFC West. I don't really know who the clear-cut number two team is over there. But when you talk about the Denver Broncos, they have a really dynamic set of young skill players. They have KJ Hamler at wide receiver. They have Cortland Sutton. They have Jerry Judy. Three real young playmakers who can really build and develop over the next couple of years. They have a dynamic pass catcher at tight end in Noah Font. An offensive line that has some nice pieces. Dalton Reisner is a really nice piece along that line. But defensively, they went out and they, they plugged some holes. They went out and they got Patrick Sertain, who I think has the chance to be an immediate plug-and-play starter. Malik Reed is a nice piece and potentially a guy who can push for double-digit sacks or close to it. And their secondary got a lot better over the past two off-seasons. But their offensive line is really inconsistent. It's a work in progress. And Drew Locke is a quarterback, a second-round pick, only eight career wins who it might be his job to win or lose over the next three weeks during training camp. We talk about all the storylines surrounding the Dallas Cowboys on hard knocks. One of the more fascinating storylines in the AFC is who's the quarterback of the Denver Broncos? Who gets to benefit from passing the ball to Font, to Judy, to Sutland, to K.J. Hamler? Who gets to hand the ball off to Melvin Gordon? A lot of star power there, but they play in a division with Melvin Gordon and Justin Herbert, with Darren Waller and Josh Jacobs and the Las Vegas Raiders, and of course the Chiefs. So that's a, a very tough mountain to climb. But then you look in the NFC East and you look at the Giants. Very similar situation here. You can make a case, and Pro Football Focus did exactly that, that the Giants' offensive line is the worst in the NFL. Now, I don't know that I would go quite that far because I think Andrew Thomas has potential and he was the number four overall pick. You saw him play significantly better down the stretch last year and he reverted back to a lot of the techniques and fundamentals that he used during his time in Georgia to make him a top five pick in the league going up against some of the premier pass rushing prospects in the nation playing in the SEC. He went back, Andrew Thomas did to a lot of those techniques down the stretch and it showed. Matt Pert showed some promise 
he was a rotational player along the line. The Giants really hope he anchors the right side of the offensive line. But anyway, the offensive line, very much a work in progress, very similar to the Denver Broncos. And you look at Daniel Jones' supporting cast and Dave Gettleman, the general manager in New York, and the front office, and Joe Judge, the head coach, they went out this offseason and they did everything in their power everything they possibly could to facilitate Jones taking a significant leap in year three, like we saw Josh Allen do in year two, like we saw Patrick Mahomes do his first year as a starter, and like we saw last season out of Baker Mayfield, the Giants are banking on Daniel Jones making that leap, but they're doing it in a pretty unconventional way. Because while they didn't add an offensive lineman in the NFL draft, while they only made, you know, tweaks along the depth chart at the interior of the offensive line, Bringing in a Zach Fulton along the offensive line from the Houston Texans. Going out and signing Jonathan Harrison as potentially a backup, potentially competition for center Nick Gates. These aren't the kind of moves that solidify an offensive line or take a rebuild to the next level. These are the kind of moves that provide depth potentially. But you look at what they did. They went out, they signed Kenny Galladay, made him the highest paid receiver in the league, guaranteed $45 million per year. They bring in John Ross, a former first-round pick. They go out and they sign a veteran tight end in Kyle Rudolph to pair with Evan Ingram, largely because he's a reliable pass catcher and he's been dominant in the red zone in his entire career. But Daniel Jones only has eight wins as a top 10 pick in the draft, the number six overall choice in 2019. This is make or break it time for Daniel Jones, just as it's make or break it time for Drew Locke. Both only have eight wins in their career. Both have massive issues turning the football over. Daniel Jones certainly needs to cut down on the fumbles and cut down on the interceptions if the Giants are going to live up to what are now loftier expectations than ever. But as training camp begins and the season approaches, I look at the Broncos in the AFC West and the Giants in the NFC East with so many parallels, so many similarities in terms of how they've built their team. It's going to be really fascinating not only to watch whether or not Locke can make the leap and Jones can make the leap, but if star power at the skill positions at wide receiver, tight end, running back, Saquon Barkley, Evan Ingram, Kadarius Toney, John Ross, all these guys being back infused into the Giants offense with Melvin Gordon. Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, and Noah Font out there in Denver. If skilled position dominance can make up for offensive line inconsistency, that could be a game changer in terms of how rosters are constructed and how championship teams are built. A lot to talk about. Big show ahead. Stay tuned on the other side. We'll chat with Mike Tannenbaum, the former general manager of the New York Jets, current NFL analyst for ESPN, and the founder of the 33rd team. Keep it locked right here on the Matt Lombardo Show, inside fan-sided Stacking the Box podcast feed. The Olympics, Euros, baseball, major championships, and concerts are all in this summer. You know what isn't? A wild and hairy bush. Tame your pubes with help from our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Their fourth-generation performance package includes the brand-new Lawnmower 4.0. If an athlete treats their body like royalty, why not treat your pubes like the Olympic gold? Fellas, do right by your balls and join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going with the code FANSIDED20. The world is starting to open, and the performance package 4.0 from Manscaped is here to help you get ready. Inside, you'll find their lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver, ball deodorant, crop reviver, toner, plus two free gifts, bonus performance boxer briefs, and shed travel bag. That's a heck of a package. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at manscaped.com. Achieve pubic glory this year with Manscaped. Introducing Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest-drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. 
Welcome back into the Matt Lombardo Show. And if you've listened to this podcast for a bit, you'll know one of my favorite things is getting to talk to people who have been in the big chair. Executives, general managers get their thoughts on today's NFL and where the league is heading. And a great guest joining me right now, ESPN NFL analyst, former general manager of the New York Jets and the founder of the 33rd team, Mike Tannenbaum. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Real Tannenbaum and the 33rd team at the 33rd team. Mike, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Appreciate you taking a few minutes with us here today. And, you know, you look around the NFL and we know it's a quarterback driven league has been for quite some time. But if you were a general manager today and you had the pick of any in their situation that they've entered, any player coming out of the draft from this year's draft class to produce immediate and sustained success, who would be your guy? You know, I would have to go with Trevor Lawrence, but um, I think Zach Wilson's going to have a great career as well. And um, I love his mobility, arm strength. I just think Trevor Lawrence is too big, too strong. Um, I think he throws it like a classic John Elway, Vinny Testaverde, and I think he has a great future. For sure. And I love what the Jets have done with the, the offense they've surrounded him with, dropping Corey Davis in there. If Denzel Mims can stay healthy, he's another high upside target. They went out and they got a, a running back in the draft. How quickly do you think that they can turn things around in what's pretty much a wide open AFC East? Yeah, I think they'll be more competitive this year. And the other guy, Elijah Moore, um, um, in the slot, I think is going to be a huge, huge difference for them. So um, I, I like a lot of what they're doing. And you go back to a year ago with Mackay Becton, having a better offensive line is just going to help that young quarterback. For sure. And you brought up Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars. What's your 30,000 view foot view of that situation with Urban Meyer coming in? You have Lawrence. There's a lot of young talent there. You know, DJ Shark, LaVisca Chenault. What's the turnaround timeline for a team like the Jaguars in a division where it's kind of the Colts, the Titans, and then a little bit wide open? I think it's going to take a minute. I think Urban's going to do well, but there's a learning curve. Um, it's a big jump just in terms of decision-making, um, clock management, timeouts. It's, it's a different game. Um, and Urban's been successful everywhere. He's been going back to Bowling Green, Utah, obviously Florida, Ohio State. Um, but there is a transition and as great a coach as Nick Saban is, you know, we all saw that it took him a minute there as well when he went to uh, Miami. For sure. And you, you look at some of the other positions coming in, wide receiver has really, the last couple of years, it seems like receivers have been more pro ready. They make an immediate impact. You look at Jeff, Justin Jefferson last year, all pro potential year one a really strong class this year as well. When you talk about some of the guys who went early, Jamar Chase, Devonta Smith, Kadarius, Tony, who's the breakout receiver from this crop of receivers. And why has that position been such an easy transition to the NFL the last couple of years? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, you know, coach Parcells always used to say like, we'll play on Sunday with what they're putting out on Saturdays. And we're just seeing the proliferation of the passing game. So someone like Jamar Chase to me, like, when you think about the fact that I love Justin Jefferson, Justin Jefferson had a huge year last year, Matt. And you think about that chase outplayed Jefferson. I'm really intrigued to see what he can do. And even though I thought Cincinnati actually got with a tackle there, I think chase is going to be a great player. And you dropped him there with Joe Burrow and they're a team that's going to be really exciting to watch. I think in the AFC North. Absolutely. Assuming Burrow comes back healthy. Burrow was uh, off to a really encouraging start. So they have a great future. I think defensively, They'll be young, but they're improving. And, um, you know, they still got a ways to go with some of those other teams in the division. But um, I think they they have a bright future. And, Mike, a team whose future really is now, and it might be a limited window, it might not be for all we know, is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers coming off the Super Bowl win. You have Tom Brady there, a second year in Bruce Arians' system. It's not often that a GM like Jason Light can keep all 22 starters from a Super Bowl winning team. I don't think it's ever happened in the free agency era. How wide is their window? Because Brady's 43. Is it a win now or bust? Or do you think that they have a blueprint – in place to keep this open for the next several years? Yeah, I, I think they have a lot of good young defensive players led by guys like Levante David, Devin White. Um, their future is all about Kyle Trask, which I thought was a great pick. Um, so we'll see how it goes for them. Um, but make no mistake about it, if we're talking about Tampa in the next three to five years, once Tom goes, it's, it's going to be about Kyle Trask's development. What stands out about him? What do you like about him? Kind of your thumbnail scouting report yeah. coming in. <clears throat> 
He reminds me a little bit of a guy like Matt Schaub, good arm strength, not a great athlete, very productive uh, with a clean pocket, can get the ball down the field, good arm. Um, the limiting factor is going to be, you know, how can he ha- handle, you know, an elite pass rush? And he just doesn't have the escapability of some of these younger, other young players. Now, what's going to happen in Green Bay? Because if Rodgers wants fewer years on that deal, the report from ESPN came out this week that they wanted to extend him out for five more, make him the highest paid quarterback and all of those things. But if he wants out, isn't it in his best interest to have a wink-wink, handshake kind of deal with Brian Gutekunst, come in, be a good foot soldier this year, and then Green Bay can deal him at the end of the year? Or am I just completely misreading that? Yeah, man, I think that's a great idea. To me, that's like the win-win. Like, let's put a little bit of a, you know, Band-Aid on it, shorten the contract, get through this year. You know, people forget, like, Green Bay went to back-to-back championship games. Like, they're a really good team. If I'm Green Bay, I can get another year out of that. It's not ideal, but you know, then deal with it in the offseason, get multiple first-round picks. So to me, that's always been like sort of like the ultimate compromise. Is there kind of a parallel to a situation that you were in in your career that you can kind of compare what's going on in Green Bay? Because it seems like a total soap opera. It seems like both sides, at least for the last few months, have dug their heels in. If you're advising Brian Gutekunst, what do you tell him if he picks up the phone and calls Mike Tannenbaum? Just, hey, do what you can to invest in the relationship. You know, from there, everything else can be solved. So obviously I think there's probably some justifiable reasons that Aaron Rodgers is upset, but you got to work really hard. You go to the root of the problem, start with the relationship and then go from there. So Mike, when you look across the whole league going into this fall, who is your surprise team to keep an eye on or teams? Who are a couple teams that can make the leap? Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm surprised that we're going to say I'm surprised, but the Patriots, I think New England's will be a lot better on defense. I love the two tight ends and Hunter Henry, John New Smith. Um, I, I thought Cam was going to play better last year, but I, I like Mac Jones. So I think they're a team that's going to be well coached, play well in the kicking game. Um, and I think they're going to make the playoffs when it's all said and done. It seems like we're kind of getting in on the ground floor here on the two tight end situations. You, you brought up John Smith and Hunter Henry. You look in New York, they go out, they get Kyle Rudolph to pair with Evan Ingram. Philly, if they don't trade Zach Ertz, they're going in with Ertz and Dallas Goddard again. It, it really seems like there's a trend now for successful teams or teams that want to be successful going to those two tight end sets. Is that something that you see really becoming a benchmark of future offenses? I do because it allows you to still run the uh, ball uh, effectively. And, you know, if you have the right tight ends where they're going to, like Kyle Pitts is obviously the best example of this, Matt, but like, and he's going to have to get better in the blocking game. But um, there's no doubt that the versatility that tight ends can bring to the game. And I think to see Coach Belichick the, the, um, sort of construct his roster shows you from a defensive perspective how hard it is to defend. Now, what about a, dis- a team that has disappointment written all over them? Because all- there's always a playoff team or a team that makes a run the year before. And whether it's because of injuries, losing talented players to free agency kind of drops like a rock the following year. Is there a team that maybe people have high expectations for and you look at it and you say, you know, I just don't get it. I don't see it. Well, I mean, there's a couple of teams. I think, you know, for me, like Cleveland, they're going to only go as far as – Baker Mayfield could take them, and I think they're going to be good, but I think there's a ceiling on Baker Mayfield. When you look at the AFC, I'd rather have Ryan Tannehill, rather have Carson Wentz, I'd rather have Herbert, Mahomes, Josh Allen. So from that perspective, as good of a nucleus as they have, and they have a very good one, um, then um, I think they're going to be good, but I don't know if they're going to be elite like others do. Yeah, and staying in that division for a second, I think a team that a lot of people maybe aren't talking about enough is the Pittsburgh Steelers, because I think there's a lot of intrigue there. I mean, you look at Ben Roethlisberger, and last December, his his arm basically fell off after that Wednesday game against the Ravens. He just wasn't the same quarterback the rest of the way. But then they go in the draft, they get him Najee Harris, they drop Pat Fryermuth as a weapon into that passing game. But if Big Ben isn't the same Roethlisberger that he's been most of his career and he's the guy that we saw last December, aren't they a 7-10 and 10 team picking 12th and kind of in that no-man's land to get the next quarterback? Or do you think that they have the, the nucleus around Roethlisberger with the receivers and with the defense to be better than that? Yeah, I see it the same way. And really, you know, one of the big challenges to me is the whole idea of who's going to be the next quarterback. I think it's close to the end. He was, I believe like 29th in yards per pass attempt. Yeah. And Ben was great. He's a hall of famer. They got a great coach, Mike Tomlin. I think he's a hall of famer. 
But I, I agree. I think their best days are behind them. But I think the real challenge for Pittsburgh is Lamar Jackson. And I think Baker Mayfield is doing that great, but he is good. And then obviously Joe Burrow that we talked about, Matt, like those are three young quarterbacks. And now all of a sudden, if you're Pittsburgh, those guys are getting better. And you still have a question mark. So it'll be interesting to see how they address that situation you know, moving forward. What, what do you make of Lamar Jackson? Because here's a guy, a unanimous MVP on his record, struggles. We've seen them in the postseason, both trips for the Ravens. Is he a guy that if you're Baltimore, you're going to make the highest paid quarterback in the league, or do you still need to see more there? I would definitely keep him. Because uh, he, he, he makes so – you go back to that playoff game, like when Baltimore and Cleveland played, you know, Baltimore made some plays there that, uh, you know, I mean, Lamar made some plays that won the game for Cleveland. Um, uh, he, he's an interesting guy. I think he's a guy that could be a really good. That, I'm sorry, that was not that was a regular season game, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, that was the regular season game uh, yeah. that got them in a position yeah, for the I'm, postseason. Yeah. 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 But the point is, like, he made a couple of plays in Cleveland that were just the difference in the game. There are some concerns, though, Matt. Like his accuracy has to get better. But there's a lot to build around, so I think you extend him. And because he's such a hard worker, you just kind of hope that his accuracy will continue to improve. Mike, let's switch to the defensive side of the ball a little bit because I'd love to get your thoughts on what's happening in that aspect of the game. You know, Fred Warner got paid this week by the San Francisco 49ers, deservedly so. He's kind of the cream of the crop of those hybrid linebackers who can do it all, drop in coverage, rush the passer, play off ball. You see Micah Parsons go number 12 overall in the draft. You see Darius Leonard about to get paid by the Indianapolis Colts. What's driving this linebacker renaissance? What, why has that position, in your opinion, become so much more important over the last couple of years, similar to what we saw on offense with the receiver position? Yeah, I think that's a big reason why, Matt, just in terms of when you're defending some of these offenses that are going to go two tight ends, three receiver, the athletes, the guys like we talked about, the Kyle Pitts of the world, you know, the inverse is you want Fred Warner, you want Darius Land that could play in space. So I think. There's still a place for the 250-pound linebacker. It's just not as important as it once was. For sure. And, you know, there's a, more of an emphasis than ever, just as there is on receiver on the cornerback position. And J.C. Horn went really high in this year's draft, another strong draft class. You know, it's no secret, though, that it takes cornerbacks a year or two to develop, but there's always a need for them. Who's the guy that comes in this year that you think makes the, the most immediate biggest impact at the cornerback position out of this year's class Patrick Sertan I just think he's polished well coached I think Horn will be good Horn was a little handsy for me yeah um, but I love Sertan and I think he'll come in start from day one for Denver and be a good player for a long time and we saw the Buccaneers and we saw them do it in February so there's obviously a blueprint there for this to be done but can a team like the, the Buccaneers again can a team like the Cleveland Browns even a rebuilt Titans defense or Ravens front seven, can they beat the Chiefs again in an AFC championship game or a Super Bowl? Can a defense really shut down Patrick Mahomes when he's at full strength? Because he was hobbled in that Super Bowl, but it seemed like he was on the run all night long. Can that be replicated in 2021, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Chiefs, you know, their line will be better. You know, they're getting back Tardif. Um, obviously, Orlando Brown should make a big difference at left tackle. Um, but with that said, you know, that's what's great about our sport, Matt. It's a one-game season, right? So do I think Tennessee would win four out of seven? It really doesn't matter. Um, if Tennessee's improved defense, for example, um, just gets them to the middle of the pack, I just think they're going to be so explosive with someone like Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. Um, certainly, I think the Chargers will be a lot better. The Bills will be there. So um, clearly, to me, the Chiefs are the favorite. But in a one-game playoff game, anything can happen. What happens in the NFC West this year? Because you look at the 49ers, they're going to get Nick Bosa back and fully healthy. Jimmy Garoppolo is the guy until Kyle Shanahan decides to go with Trey Lance. And then you look at Seattle, they're always going to be in the mix. And there's so much firepower in Arizona around Kyler Murray. What happens in that division? Because to me, that's the most competitive division in football. Again, somebody has to win it. What happens there? And what's the secret to getting in out of that group? Yeah. Um... I think it's going to be either San Francisco or Seattle. And I think if Jimmy Garoppolo stays healthy, I think they have an excellent chance. I think from a non-quarterback 
uh, situation. San Francisco and Cleveland are two of the better teams. I really like their young skill players, Debo Samuel in particular. So if Garoppolo stays healthy, um, I think San Francisco is going to be tough to beat. For sure. And then you have LA in that mix as well. And I think that they have a really talented roster too. So again, it's really a gauntlet over there on that side of the bracket. Mike, want to dive into your career real briefly here. And there was always so much made of the Darrell Rivas situation. You know, you saw everything happen on hard knocks when you guys were featured with Rex Ryan. For my money, the best hard knock season in the entire series. But what was the moment for you when you knew that he was going to be the guy on your draft card, that you knew that he was who you were going to pick? Yeah, give a lot of credit to a guy named Terry Bradway, who I had the privilege of working with for a long time in my career. And he called me from the airport after the pro day. We hadn't even seen the tape yet. He's like, this guy won't be there when we pick. We were at 21 at the time. He's like, we're going to have to trade up. And, you know, Darrell was a guy that was like a late declaring junior. So there was not a lot of information about him. That year in the Big East, there weren't a lot of receivers. So you didn't get a chance to see like a lot of his abilities, but it was his visit and his pro day that really solidified our thinking. And when you were in in the room, when you were making the decisions from a scouting standpoint, it, it's easy when you have pro personnel scouting to go out and find who's going to be a good free agent addition because you're watching, you know, NFL players against NFL players at key positions. But what was the most difficult position to evaluate going into the draft? Because you're going to have like big 10 schools that might not play the same competition as the SEC or big 12 in a down year what was the toughest position for you to scout and evaluate? And what do you think was kind of the, the position you were the sharpest eye for? Yeah, I, I think like for me, it was always about like the transition players, like asking them to stand up if their hand was down. That to me was always a hard thing to do. Um, you know, I felt like receiver, we were pretty good at, I was pretty good at. Um, but to me, the, the challenge, Matt, was always when a position, there was a position change and you were trying to project them to do something they had never done before. For sure. Now tell me about the 33rd team. What do you guys have going on over there? Yeah, Matt, uh, it's a great organization. It's former head coaches and GMs that are looking to stay current. And we discuss all the topics of the week. We get people from all over the league contributing. And then we have really smart, super smart grad students, way smarter than me. We have physics majors, math majors, uh, people that are GAs. We have people that are in analytics. We have um, people that run personnel departments for Power 5 schools. So a little bit all over the place, but um, we, and then we pair them together. We put out a newsletter and uh, our website's called uh, the 33rd team.com. Definitely check out the 33rd team.com. Definitely check out the 33rd team on Twitter at the 33rd team FB. And you can follow Mike Tannenbaum on Twitter at real Tannenbaum. Mike, this has been a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Really enjoyed the insight. Thanks again for joining us. I look forward to catching up with you further up the road. Okay, great. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Really great insight there from Mike Tannenbaum. And again, follow him on Twitter at Real Tannenbaum and the 33rd team at the 33rd team FB. And, you know, what I thought was really fascinating coming out of that conversation was what will the Baltimore Ravens do with Lamar Jackson? Because that's going to be one of the storylines that kind of hovers over this summer so long as these negotiations are ongoing and maybe even into the regular season. Because if you're the Baltimore Ravens, what else are you going to do? Because Lamar, as we talked about, has the unanimous MVP on his record. He has one playoff win, but here's where it gets a little bit tricky when it comes to Lamar Jackson. In the postseason, he's only thrown for over 200 yards one time. That was when he passed for 367 against the Titans in the win last year. But as we saw on the banks of Lake Erie in that loss to the Buffalo Bills, when the Ravens needed him to elevate his game, when they needed to win with Lamar Jackson's arm, he wasn't able to deliver. And again, it was 40 mile an hour wind gust, but Josh Allen got the job done. I have yet to see Lamar Jackson put the Baltimore Ravens on his back and throw his way to a big win. Now, what he did on the road in a tough situation where he had to go into the locker room, come out in that primetime game and get a must-win game, yes, that was a huge signature moment for Lamar Jackson. But I've yet to see it in a postseason situation the way that we've seen Patrick Mahomes do it year in and year out through his brief career, as we've seen Josh Allen do, as we saw many times over Russell Wilson do with the Seattle Seahawks. And if you're the Baltimore Ravens, do you make him the highest paid quarterback in the league? I don't know. But what's your option? You're going to be a team that's good enough in the AFC North to be the second or third best team as the floor 
And if your defense steps up and Lamar plays well, you can fight for that division title with the Balt- with the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers. There's no doubt in my mind. But here's the deal. You have to get building around Lamar Jackson in a hurry. Because as we've seen, the teams that go on to win Super Bowls, that compete for the postseason year in and year out, that go to the Super Bowl multiple times, they do it with a quarterback on their rookie deal. And that's no longer going to be the case for Lamar Jackson. And the Ravens don't have the arsenal to go up and get the top quarterback in next year's draft class. They're not going to be bad enough to be picking there in the first place. And I don't know that next year an Aaron Rodgers or another veteran quarterback is going to have Baltimore on the top of their list. And I really like Marquise Brown. I think he's a really nice piece. But is Sammy Watkins enough? Is he anything more than a complimentary weapon? At this stage of his career, Rashad Bateman's a nice player and a nice piece in the draft. But if you're going to move forward with Lamar Jackson, you're going to need to go out and get him weapons. And so far, the Ravens haven't exactly done that. They're always going to be a run-first offense with Lamar Jackson, J.K. Dobbins, and Gus Edwards. I understand that. But when push comes to shove in the modern NFL, as we've seen time and time again, defense... And the passing game in the modern NFL is what wins you titles. On the other side, we'll touch on the biggest story in the NFL this week and the cloud that threatens to linger and hang over the NFL season in 2021. Keep it right here on the Matt Lombardo Show, Inside Fansided, Stacking the Box podcast feed. Progressive presents today's to-do list for your cat. Take a nap. Meow till I get food. Get food. Walk away from food. Move to couch. See human. Give cold shoulder. Take a nap. Meow till I get your food. Your pet has get a very busy schedule, so it's up to you to make sure they're protected. That's why Progressive Car Insurance covers your pets for up to $1,000 if they're ever in a car accident with you. Move to couch. Aggressively clean myself. Take a nap. Meow till I get food. Get coverage get for your pets with anti-auto policy from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Coverage for cats and dogs included with a purchase of collision coverage and subject to policy terms. Welcome back in. Now, COVID-19 in broader society, of course, a lot of people have moved on. Masks are now kind of reserved for Halloween, and at least that's the hope. But as the Delta variant is spreading across the country like wildfire, the NFL now finds itself in a real quandary in terms of what to do about COVID-19 going into the season. Now, last year, there was a lot of flexibility. You saw games played on a Tuesday night. You saw games played on Wednesday afternoon. Games were postponed. They were shifted around. But on Thursday, the league came out and they made the major announcement that games that cannot be postponed this year will be forfeited. And that has the chance to have catastrophic consequences for players across the league. And, And it's really unfortunate when you look at the amount of players around the NFL who have yet to be vaccinated there's something like only 14 or 15 teams that have exceeded the NFL's threshold of 85 percent being vaccinated and you juxtapose that against Team USA in the Olympics where 83 percent of athletes have already been vaccinated and you kind of have to wonder what what's the hold up here why are players so hesitant why does a montez sweat come out and make the comments that he did last month where he's just not in favor of the vaccine and he wants to hear more information even after ron rivera and the washington football team brought in vaccination experts to explain the benefits of getting the vaccine even after the nfl has come out and made the protocols that if you're not vaccinated you're going to have to wear a mask you're going to have to isolate you're not going to be able to eat in the cafeteria with your teammates you're going to have to travel separate and you're going to have to quarantine on the road in hotels while your vaccinated teammates are free to go out and about now i don't know how much freedom there's going to be if the delta variant which is spreading much quicker and is much more dangerous than the original COVID-19. But here's the deal. Teams now have every motivation in the world for their players to be vaccinated. Even more so, players should have the motivation to be vaccinated because the NFL, they dropped the hammer on Thursday. Now, it might just be saber-rattling. It might just be empty threats because I don't know that the NFL wants to lose out on the lost revenue of an empty stadium because a game didn't take place when stadiums are expected to be full for all 32 teams across the league. I don't know that the NFL wants to lose out on the revenue generated from televising games that need to be forfeited. And that's where the caveat comes in that the team responsible for the the forfeit responsible for the outbreak roaring through their locker room that would lead to a forfeiture would have to pick up the bill but for the players they're not going to get paid on either team and that's where i think peer pressure comes into play 
Because if you're on a team where you have an 83% throwing an arbitrary number out there, percent of your locker room that's already been vaccinated, you're now going to be on your teammates to say, hey, dude, just go get the shot. 150 million people have already been vaccinated. The amount of people that have had any sort of consequences has been minute. It's been very minimal. And typically with our mRNA vaccines, you're going to see those side effects take place in the first couple of weeks. And there aren't zombies walking around. There isn't mass death. There isn't sort of, you know, massive injuries due to these vaccines. 150 million people have already been vaccinated. So if you're an NFL player and you're looking at your teammate who hasn't been vaccinated, if he sparks an outbreak on your team or if you have a friend on another team that only has a 35% vaccination rate, you're going to apply some pressure there because if a game is canceled because of a forfeit, that means you're not playing the full 17 games. That means that a player who has incentives and salary escalators based on playing time and performance might not be able to hit those incentives and those escalators with fewer games being played. That's a real world consequence for players in the NFL. And, you know, just talking to people around the league, I'm not really sure who benefits from this because obviously the NFL is trying everything they can to get their players to vaccinate. And again, it, once the vaccines get FDA approval, which they're going through the standard timeline and the standard protocols as they do with any other vaccine for any other disease, but once the FDA approval comes into play here that's when i believe you're going to see the nfl follow corporate america's lead and mandate that if you want to work for us if you want to be an nfl player if you want to stock shelves at walmart or target or wherever you're going to need the vaccine or you're not going to be employed by us that's how as a society we ultimately get across the finish line to get to the herd immunity threshold of vaccinations and how the nfl gets all of its players vaccinated but until that point a soft mandate of vaccination by the league to the players is going to have to suffice. But I'm not sure that everybody from the ownership side and the NFLPA side is in lockstep here because I spoke with an agent the other day and he told me that in his conversation with one general manager, he was told, quote, typical Roger Goodell, he's been untethered from the real business of football for decades, unquote. That's a pretty damning assessment of these new protocols for the COVID-19 vaccine. And here's the thing. If you're going to try to prevent the spread of COVID-19, this is what the NFL should have done last year. And this is what they should do until the threat of the Delta variant goes away. And this is from a couple of agents who have told me this. This isn't just me just, you know, coming up with it off the top of my head. Then make the, the hotel quarantines mandatory. Make it mandatory during training camp and during the season that you're going to have to stay in a hotel. Because otherwise, there's still the possibility, if you're unvaccinated, that you're going to spread the virus. So a lot to follow here in terms of COVID-19's continued impact on the league. And you've heard players come out and criticize this. DeAndre Hopkins tweeted and then deleted the tweet where he said, quote, never thought I would say this, but being put in a position to hurt my team because I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. Now, DeAndre Hopkins deleted that tweet. He's entitled to that opinion. He's also entitled to go and play in a different career, or go play a different sport or go do something else with his life. If he's going to risk the health and the ability of his teammates and his team to partake in the season because he doesn't want to get vaccinated. That, that That's just the reality of this. And then you, you look around the league and, and, you know, even more feedback that's come out. Jonathan Feliciano from the Buffalo Bills says in a deleted tweet himself, it's been proven that COVID was made in a lab. Spoiler alert, it hasn't been. Fauci is also part of Pfizer. Spoiler alert, he's not. That's why people don't want to get the vaccine. Sad to come to the realization that you cannot trust the government. Matthew Judon, the NFLPA bleeping sucks. All right. Now, now players obviously are pushing back here. But what we're seeing in the NFL is the micro level of the damage and the impact of disinformation and misinformation around these vaccines. Time will tell whether the NFL can finish this season as they were able to do, which was a really Herculean task last year with the virus spreading. But there are some projections out now from the WHO and the CDC that the spread of the Delta variant could dwarf 
the peak that we saw last October and November. So my big picture, 30,000 foot takeaway from what we saw on Thursday, a day where Giants wide receiver Kadarius Toney somehow found his way onto the COVID-19 reserve list, even though vaccines are readily available. But again, the big issue here is getting shots into arms. But my 30,000 foot takeaway here is the NFL is doing everything in its power to preserve its schedule to preserve the health of its players, and to make sure that this season goes off without a hitch. It might be easier to do than a year ago when there was no vaccine, but that's the biggest difference here. That the NFL can now wield the hammer a bit and dangle the carrot at the same time in a way they couldn't do a year ago. There was more flexibility to reschedule games when there was no readily available treatment for the virus. Now we have it. And that's where I think the NFL is trying to get its players on board with getting vaccinated. And certainly we're going to have to keep an eye on this. And the reaction I'm sure from players is going to continue to pour in over the next couple of weeks. But my thought, my prevailing expectation is that once training camps begin in earnest and you're seeing 55, 60 players free to mingle about the facility, hang out in the dining hall, work out together in the weight room, go out prior to curfew. And then the 30 or 40 players who aren't vaccinated, needing to stay in the hotel, not able to participate in meetings in person, showering separately, not working out together, all of those things maybe we'll see an uptick in the vaccinations. But we'll keep an eye on this. We'll keep an eye on all of the big storylines. The big picture, the big story, football is back. Training camp is here. The regular season is coming at us like a jail on rails. It'll be here before we know it. Thanks again to Mike Tannenbaum for joining us earlier and for his outstanding insight. Thanks to Cole Thompson for his tremendous work behind the scenes getting this podcast up and running every week i'm matt lombardo you can follow me on twitter at matt lombardo nfl please go ahead and subscribe to the stacking the box podcast in the apple podcast store on spotify soundcloud all of your favorite podcast platforms you get stacking the box with mark carmen and matt verderam on tuesdays and the matt lombardo show here every friday and if you like what you hear we'd love those five star reviews i'm matt lombardo i'll talk to you next week right here on the matt lombardo show inside fan-sided stacking the box podcast feed underdog fantasy is the fastest growing fantasy app and easiest place to play fantasy sports just jump on underdogfantasy.com or download the app draft your team and that's it and if drafts aren't your thing they also have a pick em game where you can win 20 times your money in a single night use promo code radio and underdog will double your first deposit when you sign up with up to 100 in bonus cash deposit 100 Get $100 free. That's promo code radio. Terms and conditions apply.